by way of introduction, the book of Jonah is one of the 12 minor prophets, called the minor prophets because they're short. All the minor prophets can fit on one scroll. Now, the major prophets, that's a different story. They need a little bit more parchment for that. But the focus and of prophecy of, of Jonah is God's will for man. It's not particularly talking about God always predicting the future. It's what God wants for his people to know about what he wants them to do. And the book of Jonah tells us that God wants to save any person who will repent of his sin. So he commissions Jonah to give the good news. You see, God wants his people to go on missions of mercy, as the song goes. That's God's intent. Now, the book of Jonah was probably written around 760 B.C. His ministry probably started around 800 B.C., and seemingly, there's no one else uh, prophesying while Jonah is a prophet at this time. Israel is seemingly doing a good job. They're prospering, but there's problems on the horizon. You see, about 20 or 30 years after Jonah gives this prophecy, Israel will be taken captive by Assyria. And Jonah probably knew. He probably knew the signs were coming destruction. He knew that Assyria was gaining power, and he knew that Israel's future didn't look too good. But God's plan for that nation, that sinful nation, was one of mercy. And so as Jonah says in chapter 2, verse 9, he says in the end of the verse, salvation belongs to the Lord. God is the one who saved, saves. So my dear brothers and sisters in the Lord, as we consider Jonah chapter 1, let's consider God's mercy. Let's pray. Father, We ask as we would consider this Sunday school story to so many of us, as we consider this cute song that we sing and teach our children, pray that the word that is in this text, the word that you have for us, the message that you intended for the original audience would be the message that we receive today. Cause us to, if you would, step into Jonah's shoes today. Cause us to understand how we're like Jonah, how we could be in the same predicament, Lord, if if it's not for your grace and for your work in our life. Father, we ask that you would challenge us through this passage in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one of the most attacked books in the Bible is the book of Jonah. I mean, who really believes the fairy tale story that a man gets swallowed by a whale is then the whale's belly for three days and three nights and lives through it. Who really believes such a fairy tale? And who believes that someone can control the weather by just tossing someone in and all of a sudden the weather becomes calm? Who says that? I mean, this is just ridiculous. This is just child's play. But actually, that's not what Jesus thought when it comes to the book of Jonah. Jesus said of Jonah in Matthew 12, he said... To those Pharisees, an evil and adulterous generation seek a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Then he explains a bit about Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something something greater than Jonah is here. You see, Jesus believed it was a real story. He believed that Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days. He believed that Jonah preached to Nineveh and that they repented. It's a real story. 
We find in this story that God pities sinners and he desires to show them mercy. But so often, man responds to God's mercy with contempt. How can God forgive such wicked and vile people? And the Ninevites were wicked. I mean, how can God do that? Think of all the victims of their sin. Think of those who died. Think of those who are scarred for life by what they saw. How can God show mercy to those kinds of sinners? Jonah, he thought as much about the people of Nineveh. They were wicked people. They didn't deserve God's mercy. Jonah rejected God's plan for Nineveh. Therefore, he ran away in rebellion. But God gets Jonah's attention so that he could learn about the broadness of God's mercy. So that's how we begin our story. God comes to reveal his will to Jonah. You see, he speaks to God. He speaks to Jonah. The verse begins, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. You see, God's going to give his will to Jonah, but we'll find that sometimes God's people don't always want to obey God's will. And Jonah didn't want to have God tell him what to do either. But the Lord came to Jonah and gave him a message to give to Nineveh. He said, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call against it, for evil, its evil has come up before me. Now Jonah, he was a northerner. He was a prophet who lived in Gath Hefer. That's about a 5K run from Nazareth, northeast of Nazareth. And he had already been used of God. In 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, he had been used of God to, to speak on his behalf. He was a seasoned prophet. And according to the word of God that Jonah spoke, King Jeroboam would restore Israel's boundaries that had been lost since the King David had reigned. So Jonah was someone who was already being used by God, but the text beginning and saying, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah... That's authenticating Jonah as a, as a true prophet of God. God is commissioning Jonah to leave immediately and begin a lengthy journey to Nineveh. Get up right now and pack your bags and go on a long journey. That's what God says. You're supposed to preach against Nineveh because God has noticed Nineveh's wickedness. And Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian nation and it inspired terror and all kinds of people. We think of ISIS today. I mean, just terrible people doing terrible kinds of things. That's who Jonah's called. That's the will of God is for Jonah to go there. But Jonah doesn't like God's will, so he attempts to run. Look at verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board and to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, geography is very important at this point. Tarshish, which is, report, which is repeated three times in this verse, is about as far away from Nineveh as is physically possible at the time. Many people believe that this place is in modern-day Spain. Modern-day Spain, all the way over by the Straits of Gibraltar. He wants to go all the way there, and he lives in the land of Israel. He's going as far as he can west. Now, Nineveh in modern day, that's in northern Iraq, east of Israel. Opposite ends of the spectrum, if you would. And Jonah's trying to make it as hard as possible for him to obey God. Perhaps he thinks, if I can avoid God's presence, then God can't interfere in my life. That's why it says he's fleeing from the presence of God. Jonah is on a downward path, both, both spiritually and literally. It says he goes down to Joppa. It says he goes down into the ship. Many modern translations cover that up, but in the original you see that. He's going down. And what does God do when his people are spiraling downward? 
You see, sometimes we try to escape things. Not always do we try to escape things geographically, but sometimes we, we escape things like we try to escape society. You know, God wants us to be distinct in our world. He wants us to live differently, to love differently, to speak differently, to demonstrate his holiness and love. But like Jonah, sometimes we fear that, you know what, if we don't fit in and live like the Ninevites, everyone's going to know that we're not from around here. We're a little bit different. So we, for example, sometimes will we'll try to act like Ninevites as far as we can so that people think that we, we fit in and they won't think poorly of us. So we try to hide ourselves in broad daylight by saying, let's live like them. We just try to escape from, God, from what God wants us to do, just like Jonah did. But Jonah realized, and he had to realize, and we have to realize that you cannot hide from God. You can run, but you cannot hide. God is inescapable. Not only have we found that God wants to show mercy and that he has revealed his will to Jonah, but God is inescapable. And God is going to work through the storm and through the Gentile sailors to get Jonah's attention. See, God's not going to allow his people to run away from him. And that's why he ran after Jonah, if you would. Look in verse 4. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was threatened to break up. So God is continuing to intervene in Jonah's life. And God is using that storm to stop Jonah, if you would, physically stop him in his tracks. You know, God can use anything to get our attention because he made everything. Psalm 93 says, The Lord is a great God, the King, great King above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his and he made it. So it's no surprise to us that God can hurl the waves and the winds as he pleases just as we can throw a stone. It's very easy to him. He made it. God can get our attention in very easy ways. We may think, hey, I have a plan. I'm going to go about my plan. But God can change your plan real fast. He can make something change with your car and you won't get home. And your plans are changed and the Lord gets your attention immediately. You see, the Lord can do that. But Jonah doesn't realize that God is everywhere and that God can do everything he wants to do. So he runs and he rebels. And when Jonah rebels, it affects other people. You see, the sailors were hoping for a nice trip to Spain, but what did they get? Verse 5, it says, the mariners were afraid. And each cried to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. You see, these are seasoned sailors. And they wanted a good trip to Spain and they, they, they had sailed the seas before, but what they found was a storm that they had never seen before. And that's why each one of them is praying to their own God for mercy. When they realize that's not going to win, they say, maybe we'll appease God by throwing some things into the ocean, and maybe the gods will be appeased, and obviously to lighten the load. And while they're, they're working hard for their life, what is Jonah doing? He's sleeping like a baby. He's unmoved by the imminent danger of those around him. You see, these sailors are suffering from secondhand rebellion. You've heard of secondhand smoke? This is what we call secondhand rebellion. This is phenomenon is actually not uncommon. Because of Jonah's rebellion and God's judgment on him, other people are suffering. And this can happen, for example, in a family. A husband or a father is supposed to lead his family to love God, to love others. Yet if he shirks that responsibility, who loses? 
his family. And then when God judges them, who is part of that judgment? Who loses? The wife, the kids. And you can think of all the families that have fallen apart because of one husband, one wife who has not done what God asked them to do. And the families have suffered from secondhand rebellion. It is all too easy. Our culture is full of this kind of problem. It's terrible. What's particularly disturbing is that the person, Jonah, who's rebelling against God, he's oblivious to what's happening around him. He's sound asleep. Look at verse 5, the middle. It says, But Jonah had gone down to the inner parts of the ship, and he'd laid down, and he was fast asleep. He's sleeping, and the pagans are calling for deliverance. Isn't that ironic? But the, the captain comes down to see him and says, You need to get up. You need to pray to your God. And that's ironic. A captain, a pagan man, is telling Jonah to pray to his true God. He doesn't even know what he's saying. So the captain says in verse 6, What are you doing? What do you mean, O sleeper? Arise. Call out on your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought for us that we may not perish. You know, this is unique. And if you're someone who marks your Bible, take out your pen and underline or circle the word arise. This is the second time it's come up in the text. The first time it came up in verse 2 where God says, Jonah, arise. And now you have a pagan man who's trying to get Jonah's attention. Obviously, he's getting it, uh, trying to get it on the Lord's behalf. Arise. But their gods have done no good, and perhaps Jonah's God will do something good if Jonah will but pray. And the thing is, if Jonah had prayed, if he had, had asked God for mercy, you think God would have shown mercy? Yeah, absolutely. And the people would have given God glory for quieting the storm, but Jonah's not come to his senses yet. The storm that God has brought into his life hasn't awakened him yet. It hasn't been effective yet. So the sailors say, well, if we can't get any answers, if praying isn't going to work, let's try plan B. And God is going to use these unbelievers to get Jonah to speak up. So these sailors, they start casting lots to find out who's at fault. Verse 7, and they said to one another, come, let's cast lots that we may know whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lot. And wouldn't you know, the lot falls on Jonah. Now, Jonah, he could have said to them, all before this happened, it's my fault. But he lets them go through this lottery process. He doesn't admit it. He's found out. Obviously, his sin can't be hidden forever. So all of a sudden, the sailors want to know all about Jonah. Look at verse 8. They say, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation? Where have you come from? What's your country? What people are you? I love this in the Hebrew. It just says, what occupation, what people, what country? I mean, they just start just, just uh, bombarding him with questions because they want to find out, how do we get out of this? This is a terrible storm. What, tell us, where are you from? Because they need to know what God they need to appease. Now, obviously, Jonah at this point has not done a very good job at avoiding God. I mean, the people there are telling him to pray. The people there are trying to say, hey, who's your God? So Jonah finally has to open his mouth and confess his allegiance to the one true God. So he says in verse 9, he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And of course, at this point, he admits his relationship with God, as that's the reason for the storm, but he didn't change at this point. God, at this point, is using unbelievers to remind us that we're running away from God. That's what 
Jonah realized when the unbelievers forced him to admit that God was his God. And judgment has fallen on these people, and it shows that Jonah truly doesn't fear the Lord. He's running from the Lord. And the sailors respond in terror because Jonah has told them that this God makes, has made heaven and earth. Look at verse 10. The men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing the presence of the Lord. He told them. You see, the sailors were dumbfounded that someone who claimed to know the true creator God had the audacity to defy that God. They couldn't believe it. So they're asking him, why are you defying God? So it seems that Jonah's admission in verse 9 isn't quite enough. He's not quite turned to the Lord yet. So the Lord continues to pursue him. We find this through the rest of the chapter. Look at verse 11. The sea grew more and more tempestuous. Who's responsible for controlling the sea? The Lord is. He's coming back into the picture. It's not calm yet. Jonah hasn't turned yet. He's trying to hide. He's had to cough up the fact that he serves God, but he doesn't want to submit to God's will. He doesn't call on the Lord and ask for mercy. So ironically, it's the pagan sailors who want God's will. Look at verse 11. Then they said to him, what shall we do that the sea may be quiet? They're saying, what does God want us to do? Whatever God wants us to do, we'll do. Whereas Jonah in his actions is saying, I'm not going to do that. So what do they do? They ask Jonah what they ought to do, and Jonah responds. But seemingly, he still doesn't want to do God's will. He says, pick me up, hurl me into the sea. The sea will be quiet for you, for I know that it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So you see Jonah's conscience is working. It's my fault. But there's no remorse. There's no humble cry to God. He's not saying, uh, he's saying instead, throw me overboard. He's not saying, I'll walk the plank and this will all be done. You pick me up and throw me over. I'm not going to do it myself. Jonah seems to have decided I'm going to disobey. If I can't flee from God, I can at least die and then I won't have to do what God wants me to do. I can avoid God's will. Of course, the sailors, they're reasonable people. They don't want to kill someone. They don't know for sure that it's Jonah who's at fault. So what do they do? They try to row harder, verse 13, and get back to land, but they can't. The sea is growing more and more tempestuous. Note again, who is in control of the sea? Who is making it harder and harder? The Lord. Perhaps the Lord wants the sailors to throw Jonah overboard because God still has a plan for Jonah. Indeed, he does. So in verse 14, they say, or they call out to the Lord, the sailors, the pagan sailors call on the Lord and say, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Wow. See what God did. The pagans, not the man of God, call on the Lord, the true Lord. That's ironic. And then the Lord answers their prayer. They obey, if you would. They throw them into the seas, and the sea is calm. So how does the story end? You see, Jonah is seemingly still trying to run from God, but God doesn't let him escape. So God uses the storm to stop Jonah, and as he's trying to make some progress to Tarshish, and and Jonah perhaps thinks, well, I've I've hoodwinked God. I've run away from him, and now they're going to throw me into the water, and I'll die, and God still didn't get what he wanted. I have hoodwinked God. I I don't have to do his will. But you remember, he's just jumping to the sea. Who controls the sea? The Lord does. He's not escaped from the Lord at all. 
So he seems to still try to be running from the Lord, but the pagans actually are the ones who are the people we look at and admire in this story. They're the folks who take God seriously. Look at verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they vowed, or they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. You see, these people, they realized that they had had contact with the living God, and therefore they sacrificed sacrifices. They were worshiping God then and there. And not only was that moment enough in their worship for God, but they vow vows. They say, I'm going to do even more in the future. Some people think that these people were converted. Whether or not they were, it's clear that these pagans feared God. It's clear that God received glory from them. And it's also clear that Jonah wasn't fearing God. Jonah was not giving God glory. So what we have at the end of chapter 1 is seemingly a messenger of God who's still running trying to flee God. But even though he's trying to flee God, God is still getting glory, even from the pagans who fear the Lord. You see, God works in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. The question we have for us today is, are you running? Am I running? Has God told me to do something, and am I running from it? Has God said, go east, and I say, ooh, I'm going to go west? Has God said, go make disciples? And I say, that sounds scary. I don't know if I can do that. You see, you can't escape God, and you have to know that God takes his glory very seriously, and God will show his mercy to anyone who repents. The question before us is, will you submit yourself to God's will, or will you rebel against God and receive God's judgment And all the folks around you suffer that second-hand rebellion as well, the judgment of it. May we be the kind of folks who, when judged like that, or when given a command from God, say, yes, Lord, I'll do what you say. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. Let's pray. Father, Jonah is just like us. He's made of flesh. And we completely understand where he's coming from. Ninevites, not good people. Trip to Nineveh, not a fun trip. Breaking up our schedule to do something else that we weren't planning on doing, that's not things we like to do. So sometimes, Lord, when you tell us to do this or that, we say, you know, I'd rather not. I'd rather try something else. Lord, keep us from that. Keep us from that for our own sakes. Keep us from that for the sake of other people who will come into harm's way because of our sin, because of rebellion against God. You want to show mercy. You want to be so kind. And that's the theme of this book, that you want to show mercy to repentant sinners, Lord, wicked, wicked people. And you want to do good things through our life. We just have to say, Lord, I'll submit. I'll follow you. I'll do what you want. Father, I pray that that would be the heartbeat of our hearts. Help us to do it. Thank you for giving us the grace to do do that. Pray that we would take upon your grace and obey. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.